2: From Luminary, this is British Villains. When I was a kid, I'd come home from school and there'd be the smell of cigar smoke wafting from our kitchen. Various blokes would be around the table laughing and joking. There was Jerry the Truck. He could get you a car at very short notice. I don't know how he did it, but he could get you any fucking car. Then there was Don the Dent. He was the dentist on call if you had your tooth knocked out. And believe me, he was definitely kept busy. I also remember one bloke in particular. His name was Wally the Peak. He was a gypsy and a jeweller, but he didn't have a jewellery shop, so he wore all his stock like a human fucking display cabinet. Rings, chains, women's earrings, the lot. I think the real reason Wally captured my attention was because he'd always give me and my sisters money. He used to stick his hand in his pocket. He'd pull out a wad of cash and slowly peel off a 20 and give us one each. It was amazing. Anyway, for hours they'd play cards, swap lies and drink scotch. To anyone else it looked like they were doing fuck all. But now that I know how villains operate, this was a board meeting and they were full-on grafting. I'm William Green, and this is British Villains.
3: The local villains of the time were, were real hard men, local hard men who were fighters, they were extortioners, they were going to a pub and they would demand drinks and they would take money.
4: The weapons was used was, was a, a, a woody sock, sand weighted, sand in the bottom and tied up in a knot. They see death, they
3: see
2: destruction. There was this other bloke in our kitchen, lovely fella, had a bright smile, always a kind word, always gave me a hug. I had no idea that he was one of London's most notorious living villains. My name's Freddie Foreman, Uh, I was
4: born in Battersea in 1932, and uh, I was the, the youngest of five brothers. I had four older brothers. Freddie
2: Foreman, born and bred in South London. He was one of the strings that tied the whole London crime world together. Nothing happened in South London without him getting wind of it. He was good at being a villain. He understood the rules of the streets and he was brilliant at not getting caught. But Freddie was also someone you could call if you got into a situation. Freddie could fix anything. My dad and Fred, they've been mates since they were kids. They grew up poor and I mean poor. But the trauma of war was caused by the noise and the lack of stability. The air raids every night, the eerie whistling of bombs dropping above you, the massive amount of destruction all around. All of that stayed with these kids.
4: Dead people fucking lying, lying on the pavement. And it was so common, though, you know, and, uh, and, and you were really scared. I mean, there was moments when you really was frightened. These days,
2: Fred... 85 years young, still lives in London. So me and my dad went to see Fred. I don't think my dad had seen him since the last time Fred was in prison. It's a little tricky interviewing villains, discussing classified information with people who, quite frankly, don't like to talk shop, especially when it's being recorded. I asked Fred how old he was when he first got arrested.
4: First time I got arrested was when... uh... I was in my teens. It was a GBH. Having a punch-up. That's
2: grievous bodily harm. A tad more than a punch-up. Punch-up
4: with another gang of kids in Dulwich, North Dulwich, Peckham really it was.
2: So here we are in Fred's flat. It's in Maida Vale, a nice West London neighbourhood. To give you an idea of how Fred lives today... His flat is bursting at the seams with memorabilia. There are stacks of books and DVDs all about British crime and plenty of them mention Fred. As I'm sitting there, I can't help but notice that Fred's using a giant gold bar for a doorstop. I thought to myself, is that real? I mean, it looks fucking real. I thought I'd start off by asking Fred about some of the other weapons that were used in his early days,
4: the weapons was used was old wooly sock, sand weighted, sand in the bottom, and tied up in a knot. Yeah, and, and some little little uh, couple of little steel things to called for a barber's chair when you had your feet in a barber's chair, mm-hmm. where you foot, put your foot like foot rest. They was like. A couple of those little things. These were the, the offensive weapons we supposed to have been ha- had, which we did have, you know. Weighted socks, bits of a footrest.
2: They were basically using anything they could get their hands on. He tells me about a time when his kids, they were hauled up in front of the judge for possessing said
4: weapons. They nicked about six of us because the kids grasped each other up. No, as soon as the police was there with their mums and uh, right. there, was only kids <laughs> And we were at the Old Bailey, in the Old Bailey, the dock at the Old Bailey. Prosecution's getting up and we're all sitting there and he's saying, and he uh, he's giving his speech, the opening speech. The only reason Fred Foreman wasn't involved
2: in the Great Train Robbery was because he didn't want to be. As we've mentioned before, villains in London made up a relatively small community and everyone was in each other's business. Especially when it came to jobs like the train robbery. Fred heard about the robbery when Bruce and Buster went to see him to discuss him coming on board. But Fred had been busy working overtime on his own big
4: job. The reason was Bruce come to me and asked me, right, and I declined because I just had 40 bars of gold off. And he said, You've had the gold, didn't you? and. I, and that was only a few weeks prior to the train. You know, uh, well, a month, perhaps a month before. Yeah. Right. So I, I wasn't involved with it. Uh, I, I, I had this. you still got one dad in her. What's that? Alan? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's
2: confirmation on the gold bar then?
4: They was twice the size as they were. <laughs> it was the uh, biggest gold robbery since the Spanish main they put in the paper. And what year was that, was like, like 62? Just 62. before the train, right. Yeah. So Fred wanted to lay
2: low for a bit. He was almost always at the top of any suspect list for these big heists. So now wouldn't have been the time to start robbing the Queen's train, no matter what the payout. Anyway, what happened to the rest of the gold bars, Fred?
4: And did they ever get any of it? They got any? No, no. I got it all over to Switzerland, got it in, into a Swiss bank, and got every penny at, uh, at the right price because it, it didn't have to be essayed because it, what's it, S8, it, mean? Well, well, you t- you have to go to uh, Johnson Matthews and they they evaluate the quality of the gold. But these bars, twenty-eight pound bars twice the size of them ones. And underneath internal, it's round, it's got red and it's got all serial numbers and the quality of the gold. Every bar's the same quality, you know.
2: There's no doubt that Freddie Foreman was an expert bank robber who was known for participating in historically big jobs. But who is he really? First up, there's the Fred the public knows. Fred was a career villain. A villain's villain, a troubleshooter. He worked for a time with the Cray twins, Ronnie and Reggie Cray. Probably the most notorious crime figures of the era. He also worked with other firms. Fred was tried twice for murder, but never convicted. He went to prison, once for armed robbery, once for playing the part in disposing of a body. The facts state that he was an intimidating villain who was connected to some of the most violent and hardcore gangsters of the London underworld, including... Tommy Marks, Ginger Marks. We'll hear about Ginger Marks later. And then there's the Fred I know through my dad. Friendly bloke. Great storyteller. Lovely guy. I mean, the first time you met Fred, you thought, he must be a bank manager, because that's how he looked. Maybe this was a deliberate act to gain your trust. Either way, I liked him, and so did my dad. Regardless, you just can't tell the story of British crime Without including Freddie Foreman, the governor. Fred Foreman's a very uh, important person uh,
3: when we talk about the post-war London crime scene.
2: Dick Hobbs, our resident criminologist who specialises in British crime. We asked Dick about Fred.
3: He had uh, the skills and the personal abilities... Uh, to work with a wide range of people he wasn't restricted by territory that's important to say although he was from south london and his base was in south london he wasn't restricted by that at all he had a a good relationship with charlie cray with the cray twins older brother which uh, enabled him to meet the crays and to work with them briefly i mean i've met Fred, a couple of times uh, to this day, he's a very charming man, he gets on well with people, he looks you in the eye and he talks to you, he's articulate, he's thoughtful, um, he's a bright guy. And I think these personal characteristics and his uh, reluctance to get involved in the kind of juvenile sort of gang warfare that the craze were interested in, particularly Ron Cray was interested in, um, that, was his, that was his skill, that was his ability to just, to just keep out of that as much as he could and to make money, because that
2: is really what it's about. There aren't many blokes still standing who knocked around with Bruce Reynolds, who did business with the Crays or the Richardsons, except Fred and my dad. The The, the two main families that we talk about when we talk about crime
3: in, in London are the, um, are the Cray family, the Cray family and the Richardson family. The Cray family, East London, Born in Hoxton, moved to Bethnal Green, um, and the Richardson
2: brothers from South London, Peckham. For the American listeners, we'll start with the Cray twins, if only because they're the best known. Certainly whenever I go to the States and let's
3: talk about organised crime there, people say, oh yeah, I've seen the film of the Crays, I've seen this, I've read the book on the Crays, etc., etc." and they're just like American Mafia, or they're just like an Italian crime folk. Well, they're not. They're different.
2: So the Cray family, they settle in Bethnal Green. Bethnal Green, East End of London. Back then, it was dirt poor, and crime was rife. Three
3: brothers, uh, Charles Cray, the oldest, and the two twins, the most famous, uh, Reg Cray and Ron Cray. But the main thing that they experience is that they experience the, um, the trials and tribulations of war as children. They see death. They see destruction. They're aware of the tension and the fear that is in the air. Um, gradually, the Craig brothers learnt about violence. They learnt about boxing. And they started to really look up to local villains. And the local villains at the time, we're talking now into the into the 1940s, and the local villains of the time were, were real hard men, local hard men who were fighters, they were extortioners, they were going to a pub and they would demand drinks and they would take money from the, from the people that ran the pub. And these guys really hadn't changed from the hard men of the 19th century. They were kind of Dickensian characters, you know. They, 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 they had all had fantastic n- nicknames and they, they, they had big, big reputations and they were extremely tough violent men they were were violent to women they were violent to neighbors they were nice people but nonetheless the craze started to look up to these guys because they were making money they were making their own money they weren't rich but they were making money and they were respected people in that area and they started to copy them they started to mimic them by the time they become teenagers they're known to the police for fighting they're known as being good at fighting indeed the, the only talent that the Cray Twins ever had was violence. That's what they did. That's what they were good at. They they went on to become lousy businessmen and not very good gangsters, actually, but they were very good at violence. They had a talent for violence. And the Crays certainly did not uh, hold back from, from using weapons. And in their time, they used every kind of weapon in order to, to enforce their, uh, their, their reign. And Nothing unusual about that. You know, In that respect, nothing's changed.
2: As I pointed out already, British villains and American gangsters were different animals. But the truth is, a lot of London villains were influenced by what they saw happening overseas and in the movies. This was particularly true of the craze. They adored criminals. They liked big-name criminals. Uh, Ron
3: Cray adored Al Capone. They started to mimic the kind of American model of, of, of organised crime that they'd seen on, on on the films. A barber would visit um, the family home. They still lived at home with their mum. A barber would uh, visit the family home to give them a, uh, to give them a haircut because um, Ron Cray knew that that's what Al Capone had done, so he was mimicking Al Capone. So there was a lot of this, a lot of it was front. A lot of this was about, um, was about uh, publicity, uh, about celebrity. They liked celebrity. They liked uh, hanging around with uh, actors and actresses and famous boxers.
2: The British actor Tom Hardy played both the craze in a film called Legend. While preparing for the roles, he consulted Fred. Hardy penned the introduction in Fred's book about the craze. He wrote... How is it that this underworld enforcer has given so much of his time to coach me in the way the twins walked, talked, scratched their heads and even giggled? Well, Freddie was there and he fiercely believes that if you're going to tell the story of Gangland London, then you better tell it right. They were always being photographed and
3: and shown in in, in local uh, newspapers, uh, the local newspaper was the East London, London Advertise. Now, in terms of being a good gangster or a, a smart gangster, the Craze never made huge amounts of money. The Craze made more money when they were in prison than they did when they were outside prison. Now, one of the things that gangsters do is they take over businesses. So there's a bit of extortion, you know, there's a bit of give me five pounds a week and I'll make sure there's no trouble. It's going to cost you 10, it's going to cost you 20, it's going to. And eventually they become partners in the business and, and then. The legitimate people, the, the non-criminal people just walk away from it and they leave the business to, to the gangsters. It's it's classic. It goes on all over the world. You'll, you'll find this all over the world. When this happened with the, with the craze, when they took over a business, they killed the business stone dead. They were useless because they ran it like a boys club. They ran it like a boys club. There's money being taken out of the till. There were fights, they were doing the fights, they were, they were hurting people, they were doing the fighting rather, they were hurting people, they were damaging people because they, they liked violence and they were very good at it. It was their main talent uh, and they couldn't run these businesses. So they would take over a business and within a year or so the business was flat and useless and gone and they'd move on to something else.
2: The crazes weren't great businessmen. I think everyone at the time knew that. What's more interesting is the stuff people didn't know. Ron Cray was was mentally ill, severely mentally ill, uh, ill,
3: and he um, became dysfunctional as a criminal, pretty dysfunctional as a criminal, except for his violence. Um, Reg Cray was struggling with his sexuality. Um, It appears now, in retrospect, that Reg was probably bisexual, um, and you've got to remember this is an era when um, homosexuality was illegal. So this was this was quite difficult for, for Reg Cray to deal with. Um, he married a young woman. It was a chaotic marriage. Things went wrong. She committed suicide. He reverted to taking um, drugs and drinking heavily. And his violent activity... Um, tended to dominate the commercial activity of the of the Cray firm. So they became violent. Ron Cray, me- Ron Cray meanwhile, w- w- was gay. Uh, he was severely mentally ill. And the combination of these two things came together and they committed, um, I don't think we've got time to go into
2: the details of the murders, but they committed um, at least two murders. You can't overstate the hardships of being gay back then. It was illegal to be homosexual and the punishments were extreme. So being openly gay was just not an option for most people. So the craze in particular
3: as gay murderers lived in really interesting times. I mean, I'd say if they were around now, they'd be on Celebrity Big Brother, they'd be in the jungle, they'd be doing all of this stuff, they'd have their own websites, they'd have their own clothing ranges, you know, you name it, you you, you name it. It would, um, yeah, it'd be good when it Queer Eye with Ron Cray. Because that that campness, which is now part of the way we all live and part of the way we consume and part of all kinds of things... Was, was not central to the culture then. So they went for this hyper-masculinity in order to cover up their conflicted sexuality.
2: And I think that's kind of interesting. So that's the craze. In my dad and Fred's era, the other big firm in South London were the Richardsons, Charlie and Eddie. They were a big-time family firm, and they were very successful. They were in South London, and the Richardsons were very different.
3: The Richardsons, a uh, similar age, they came through the Second World War, they saw and heard and suffered all the things that everybody else suffered during the Second World War, but after the Second World War, they showed as very young men that they had a penchant for hard work. They could graft, and they set up a scrap metal business. They also made money from various other um Activities, including uh, long-term frauds. Now, a long-term fraud would be: uh, you would set up a business, and you would buy your stock um, from a, from legitimate firms, and you would pay on time, and you would build. You would do this over several months, maybe longer, and you would build up a, a good line in credit. And then one day when you had a good line in credit from multiple suppliers, you would make a big order from each one of those suppliers and you would bring the goods in and you would disappear. And that was a long firm fraud. And the Richards, although the, the Crays did it as well, the Richardsons were particularly good at it, particularly uh, adept at making money from long firm, from long
2: firm frauds. Now, the Richardsons. They didn't fuck about. They gathered uh, around
3: them a, a group of of, uh, of men who, were, in terms of their violent potential, were far more potent than than the Krays. The people the Krays had around, around them were uh, competent, uh, but that was about it. The group of people that, that the Richardson's had around them were, 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 were serious criminals and and have a proven extremely violent background and they became involved in what was later to be called the torture trial the torture case where um they it was alleged that um they had set up an informal trial of key individuals who had allegedly taken money from them from these long firm frauds that they've been setting up that they set up and um They'd have these mock trials, and they would torture them, allegedly. Uh, They would um, attach uh, a generator uh, to the private parts of of, uh, some of their prisoners, in quotes, and um, torture
4: them with uh, electricity. So they captured a few of them, took them back and put them on trial, didn't they? The criminal
2: underworld at the time was shifting to a dark place. Very dark. Professor Hobbs has his own take. From my perspective,
3: and I've looked at it quite closely, um, the torture trial, this, these allegations that, that uh, people were, were tortured, um, had their toenails ripped out with pliers and all kinds of things like that, were severely beaten. Um, I can't see any records of any scars, of any medical records of any x-rays of any photographs um and my gut feeling is there was a severe uh, exaggeration of what was going on because it suited
2: everybody to get these guys put away for as long as possible of course as we know everyone has a version here's freds and remember dr hobbs he actually knew these fellas
4: Really? They were coming back out of the woodwork and, 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 and the testicles and, and all that, putting electric thing on their te- testicles and sending them out bollock naked with, and leaving them at telephone boxes with, with no clothes on, and, you know, to, that's what they'd done. So they were Oh well, people, scary. Nasty people. Just nasty. Yeah, things you wouldn't dream of doing, you know.
2: Since we're on the subject of nasty bastards, let's talk about Frankie Fraser. Or Mad Frank, as he was known, not just the villain. Mad Frank was a fucking psychopath. I spent some time with um, Frankie
3: Fraser, who, of course known as Mad Frankie Fraser for good reason. Um, and and Frank liked violence, and he was introduced to violence early on. A very intelligent man was was Frank, and he he was very. Um, to point out that he didn't come from a particularly deprived background except the element of deprivation that does come in according to him was that his parents were not criminals and that was a drawback for him the family were not criminal now for him that's a, that's a, that became a drawback Because other young men, when they first started to get arrested, could take advice from the family. They could say, well, say this to the police, don't say that to the police. When you go to court, this is how to behave. When you go to prison, mention this person, mention that person, this is how you're going to go. He didn't have any of that. And he regarded that as
2: being a drawback in his chosen career. Fraser ended up spending several decades in prison. That's a big old price to pay
3: for that lifestyle that he had only briefly, that he had only briefly. But he did it, and, you know, I asked him about it, and he said, no, I wouldn't change a thing. Why he was, was, and that was the way he's wired, and I've got no answer to
2: why he was wired like that, really. Speaking of the children of criminals, in Fred's flat, there's an impressive metal bust of him made by Nick Reynolds, who is also a noted artist, as well as a musician.
5: So I, um, I said to my dad, who's the kind of the nine most famous living or infamous um, criminals in England at day? That's Nick, Bruce Reynolds' son. There's a paradox here, you know, and I want to explore this, how, how sort of people that are vilified um, by the media on, on one hand can then be fated on the celebrity circuit the next. This didn't make any sense to me. So especially kind of growing up with it and so close to it. So he gave me a list and I cast all of their heads. Um, you know, I moulded I moulded their faces for an exhibition called Cons to Icons, and um, I did Mad Frank in a in a straight jacket.
2: Mad Frank being Frankie Fraser.
5: <laughs> but but the funny thing is is uh, I nearly killed him when I was doing it because I have to breathe um, through straws in their nose, and because his nickname um, was the dentist because apparently he used to go around with a pair of pliers, you know, ripping people's teeth out and stuff like that. Um, so I thought, right, oh, I've got this old fashioned dentist chair and I had him sat in the dentist chair and um, was covering his head and I said to him, Look, this it's gonna be on you for about half an hour, forty minutes. Um, any problems, you know, just put your hand up, you know, and um, and I'll take it off, you know. So, okay, understood. So I put the straws up his you nose, know, started putting everything on and I'm chatting away with him, you know, and I get the odd little nod here and there. You alright, Frank, you know. Thumbs up. All of a sudden I said to him, are you all right? And I I looked at his knuckles and his hands were shaking and his knuckles were white. And I said, you all right there? You all right? And he didn't respond. And I thought, bloody hell, what's going on? What's going on? So I quickly pulled everything off. Luckily, it had just started to... To go hard, and he's there panting, panting for breath. And I said, "What what that? Up, what's up?" He goes, oh, he goes, oh. my nose has been broken so many times." He said, um, "I didn't realise how difficult it is to breathe that long through my nose." And he said, "About halfway through, he says, I, 'I, I couldn't breathe through my nose.'" So I said, "Well, what are you doing?" So I was holding my breath. I said, I, I said why, 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 why didn't you just put your hand up and, and tell me you was in trouble? And I could have... He goes, oh, because no one else has done that yet, have I? I didn't want to be the first. He didn't want... He, he would have rather suffocated than, than the, chicken out. The, the chicken out the, and that's something that I, I...
2: Now, in my opinion, Mad Frank, Frankie Fraser, was a violent nutter. And to some degree, the craze were too they didn't care about being legitimate businessmen. That's why I don't put Fred in the same category, because even though Fred was a career criminal, he also ran lots of above-board and very successful businesses. Here's Dick Hobbs. I think it's a great point. You know, they are ordinary people. Most of them.
3: Some of them are not. I mean, some of the people I've met are complete nutcases and you're glad to get out of the room. But not many. Not many. I mean, I have, I have interviewed... Talked to, spent time with a few uh, criminals who are quite frightening. They're cold, and when they talk about violence, they like it. They 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 like the memory of the violence. They they like the effect it has on them, and they like the effect the effect that it has on the listener as well because they can see you're they're talking about gouging someone's eye out and they can see you're repulsed by it and they like that power they've got over you they like that ability you know they 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 like that ability that they've got but they're few and far between they're few they're few and far between they are out there but they're they're few and far between and uh, you know fred foreman in his day was a Physically, a formidable man. There's no doubt about. It. There's no doubt about it. But um, he was a rational man. He knew what he was doing. Uh, he made choices, and um, for a big chunk of his life, those choices paid off.
6: Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand.
4: My mum, George, got blasted with a shotgun, right?
2: There's one story that Fred remembers in fine detail. That's the funny thing about villains. When it comes to certain events, they possess these impressive, retentive memories. Other times, when questioned, their memory fogs over and they begin to mumble incoherently. Anyway, it all begins with Fred's brother having an affair with a known London villain's girlfriend. Not a clever
4: move. Brother got shot. My, my, he was in the next two flats away in Vauxhall. They had a council flat. And my George was been at North, you know what sailors are free and easy, bright and breezy. Right. right. Ladies, pride and joy. <laughs> Right, uh, he used to put it about a bit, George, and when the clubs and the, with the girls and that, and he's married and he's got four daughters, you know. And um, but I was only young at the time, and he's having having an affair with this this little, little blonde bird who used to come in the club. They used to come in four, four or five handed, uh, and I even took. At finished up partying up my place in Milton Road, up you know, and he used to go back there till early hours of the morning. I had a cocktail bar and I called him, finish off, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And but she had she, and, uh, this reason, she'd run, run off this day when she found out I, it, I was his brother. <laughs> she didn't realize <laughs> it, <laughs> George's brother. Anyway, there was this, I never knew it was going on, never knew nothing about it. But he'd been seeing that and he got. Evans, Jimmy Evans got to see, it, hear about it. So George, the
2: good-looking sailor, is playing with fire because his new girlfriend is married to a villain called Jimmy Evans who was banged up in prison at the time. And uh,
4: he'd already done another guy with a knife, a blade, which he'd had a bit of a, a flea with, and went through his private parts and stabbed him there and cut his thumb off. The guy, the guy lost his thumb but with a knife blade. Right. And he had this house of peacocks, uh, and had these peacocks, bone, and they had better than any guard dogs. At any noise, I went there, great. They had them in the Napoleonic Wars and all that. They used them, so they, they had a bit of history with them, you know. And he had these peacocks. and uh, it, he uh, he he went out. He got a four ten with a guy a four ten shotgun, shotgun. But it wasn't big enough. He went back and. Go, no, no, it, t- what's the smallest one under a 410? Is a, 210? Uh, no, is a smaller one. Uh, anyway, they're, they're different size cartridges, but it wasn't big enough for what he wanted. He got the 410 ones, which are the bigger ones, and because uh, that'll come out later on in the evidence. Anyway, let's
2: get back to what happened after Jimmy Evans found out. Evans brings his mate Tommy Marks, street name Ginger Marks, to help resolve this situation
4: and uh he uh george was with his four daughters and his wife having a meal tea time and danny pembroke lived two doors on along from him on the balcony
2: here's an interesting fact danny pembroke was one of the train robbers who got away had a second less stressful career as a
4: london cabbie anyway carry on fred and uh he was as you come up the stairs of the balcony and the flats. He just turned left. is George's flat. Then Daddy left two flats further down. So he, he he's having a meal and he, uh, he, he gets, uh, it it gets someone knocking on the door. So he goes to see. He opens the door and it, it's Tommy Marks. He's in the
2: I suspect that if George had been a villain like Fred and not a sailor, he wouldn't have opened that door. This wasn't a
4: social call, right, Ginger Marks? Yeah. And Jimmy Marks says, "Oh, it's sad, so sad, so, 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 Livia, mate." He said, "I don't know, mate. I don't know. I don't know their names, but I can ask that someone else. You know, I don't know who it is." And uh, oh, I, and he shut the door, went back, and had a milk. He kept on with his milk, and about five minutes later, he knock-knock on the door, it goes oh, to the door, it goes the door, but it's a bit darker now because they'd taken the bulbs out on the stairs, apparently, on the flats, so it was a bit dark. And uh, he steps out of the shadows with the shotgun, blast him, he held it too close. If it had stood back, the, the shot would have spread, but it didn't, it come out like, uh, in, a, in a ball and a mass didn't have time to spread it took in a, a bigger area because he's aiming at his private parts trying to shoot him in the bullet yeah yeah, that's what he was aiming for but it didn't, it come out t- too solid like right. before it spread it's too close up and of course it hit him yeah, right here in the leg there and it, and you could put a, bottle, a champagne bottle into in the, the wound you could put it in there honestly like that it was, his wound, like that. It's uh, the same, well, it never had time to spread, see? It was all shot. And uh, George was at the door, he hit the wall at the end of the passage. That's the, the blast. Far, it knocked him from the door to the back wall at the end of the passage. And who come out, who heard it? Danny. Our elusive train robber, Danny. Danny P. And he came running up the door and saw George to stay... No-one had mobile phones in the, or f- phones in the house, but he had to run down Danny to to a, a red pillar post box. And uh, people waiting. They used to queue up outside to get in and take, make a phone call. And he gets in there and phones up an ambulance. Ambulance comes and takes to take Thomas' hospital. One of the daughters come round to the pub to tell me what happened. I go up to St Thomas's, it's full of coppers everywhere. I go into the wall, he's in bed, he can't, he's semi-conscious. And as he's laying there, he's just laying there. And I said, who was George? And he said, ginger top, ginger top, because the coppers are in there, you know. So, junior, who's Ginger Tom? I don't, I don't know who he is. But he, he got the one who hammer knocked on the door and asked for someone. That he, he half recognised him, you know? Right. Uh, so, yeah. I didn't even know who it was.
2: The agonising wait for the doctor paid off for George because they were able to save his leg.
4: And, uh, Amazing. And saved his leg. Amazing. And he had his leg on him till the, the age of 93. <laughs> how lucky how was that? How lucky he? was that? But, of course... This was
2: not the end to this story. Revenge for this shooting was not an option. It was
4: expected. But so he's laying in the bed and he saw he's giving me the Ginger Tom. And I didn't know that. So, what is from that man up, I go to the twins, stay away, don't I? Right. The Cray twins. And remember, they knew everyone. And I'm I'm in the kitchen now. And I, was, I said, Do you know, anyone, my name would call Ginger Tom. Charlie Quay said, fucking course, course. They said, yeah, we don't know. He's lived around the corner. About just that, right? oh, oh, I said, no. Oh. I said, oh. I said oh. what, what, What's, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's going to work. To, he works with uh, Jimmy Evans. He's the fight guy that burns out all the Jewish uh, smart, all their factories.
2: So it turns out that Ginger Marks' area of expertise... Was burning down factories for insurance claims, particularly in the East End of London. He was also a jewel thief. The craze informed Fred that Ginger Marks had been hired to rob a jeweler's that weekend.
4: So he's, he said, he's got. To, I told him he's got to bring the top man to me after the robbery. So I'll have it off him. And so he's going to work with uh, with his the guys he works with. And it turns out it was him, you know.
2: I asked Fred at one point if he thought it was worth it. The life of a villain. A life of crime. He goes, I don't know. I spent 20 years in prison. I don't know if it was worth it. Probably not. As we're about to leave, Fred told me about a time he and his crew broke into a safe. A safe
4: inside a glass factory of all things. It's an all-night work in there. So in this big factory, it's all bang, crash, you hear all these noises and machinery going. That's right. They planned to break
2: into the safe in the factory while the factory workers were just carrying on with their
4: shifts. But luckily for them... There's no security, apparently. We've been told (laughs) there's no security, right? And the office windows looked out onto the work... Where all the work was going on, so we made our entrance there, and the peter was over in the side, so we had to build a the tent the safe the safe yeah. yeah we had to build a tent round the safe and burn it open and and wait for it to cool down we had got to wait like ten fifteen minutes or so you know so we go we go and sit down below the window and all of a sudden. We're having a sandwich, a glass of tea there, and we're just sitting there relaxing. And, and, so you're on the job, you're having a cup of tea? Yeah,
2: waiting for the Peter to
4: cool down. You had to wait for it to so come. You bring the, so you your sandwiches and tea with Yeah, it. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When yeah, you're on the yeah, job? Oh yeah, of course. When
2: I think of that image, Freddie Foreman in the middle of a robbery, pausing for sandwiches and tea. In effect, taking a fucking lunch break, just like the factory workers in the next room over. It occurs to me that a villain like Fred, for all his notoriety, crime and money, he really was quite ordinary. When we left his room, he was sitting in his armchair, staring out his window onto a grey London afternoon, and he looked like any other man in his twilight years with time to reflect. Grew up poor, during the Blitz, something he still has nightmares about. Did his best to get ahead with what he had. Sometimes wits, sometimes fists. He did time. He has big regrets. But he's also a bloke who took his sandwiches to work. Because being a villain was his job. In a recent magazine article, Fred goes to great length to say he doesn't glamorise criminals. He regrets how his life turned out. The last thing he tells the reporter... I just hope it encourages kids to get a good education. In this bonus episode, we were pulled down a rabbit hole of the who's who of 1960s organised crime. Freddie Foreman let us into his world, just a little. As we've mentioned before, most of the players from that time are long dead, their stories buried along with them. Freddie Foreman walked the pavements of London, north, south, east and west, He wasn't tied to any place or anyone. He was and remains the governor and he doesn't shy away from any of it. The money, the violence, the police. Every villain we've covered on this podcast has had to live with the knowledge that their actions affected people because there are no victimless crimes. Here's my final thought. Today, our banks have highly sophisticated security systems and CCTV is following our every move. But crime hasn't gone away, and neither have villains, because people in difficult circumstances will always look for ways to beat the system, to make readies whatever way they can. Today, people lock their doors at night, don't talk to their neighbours, and public housing communities are broken and divided. The class system in England is still in place, which means some people will make the decision to hustle their way out of poverty whatever way they can. It has always been just about economics, and that's the truth, at least my side. I'm William Green, and this is British Villains. Thanks for listening. Luminary. British Villains is a production of The Cut, Ninth Planet Audio, and Western Sound. Executive producers are William Green, Erin Ginsburg, Jimmy Miller, Hans Sarney, and Ben Adair. The show was written by Rosecrans Baldwin and Vanessa Sadler. Nick Reynolds and Edward Rose composed the theme, music by Michael Cruz. Producers include Christina Moore, Annette Runhell, and Stephanie Aguilar. The show was sound designed and engineered by Dan Leon.
1: Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health.